Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Streaming box technology and business rundown. Welcome to the Screaming Box Technology and Business Rundown podcast. Today we're here with Myron McMillan and we're going to get deep into team ops. Myron, welcome. Thanks. It's great to be here. Um, Myron, can you give us a little bit of background and your start in Team Ops and uh, uh, let us know uh, your experience? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, my career for the past 20 odd years, I've been leading design, product management, and software engineering teams. And I got my start initially on the design and development hybrid side as an individual contributor working on front-end and CD-ROM-based interactive design and development. And then throughout my career, I started leading those teams. And for the last three years, I've actually been working on tools to help software engineering teams be more effective and engaged and collaborative and really focus on that team ops aspect of things. Uh, It's largely been, for me personally, a redemption arc because early in my career, the resources didn't exist and the tools and processes and techniques weren't available to make me a really great leader and manager. So as opposed to going back and writing apology letters to everybody I managed early in my career, I wanted to help build the tools and bring those processes to people who could use them so they don't repeat the same mistakes that I made when I was coming up in my career. So how was working on product development different 20 years ago versus now? Yeah, I mean, at some places that I've observed, it's not any different. I think that's problematic. Uh, we've, We've had the benefit of, over the last 20 years, of a lot of different tools and heuristics and frameworks and methodologies that have come to bear, like... Uh, different agile frameworks, different uh, ways of introducing lean processes. And I think the biggest difference is I can remember early in my career building these huge, you know, wall-based Gantt charts where we were trying to predict every single possible permutation of things and every stage and every dollar and the capacity of every individual person. And now we can be a lot more responsive and reflective in how things actually get done. And we can do it in a way where individuals have more ownership, and hopefully have more empathy about the problem that they're trying to solve so that it's not just some giant dictate near a cog in the machine. Uh, that, that, I think, is, is probably the biggest thing. However, you know, what it's going to look like 20 years from now is, is a, a, another question. There's, there's no right answer for, for any way to do th- these things. It's, it's very personal and it's very context sensitive. Do you think the productivity of software development 20 years ago is similar than the set, you know, productivity that we have now? Does it take about the same resources or do you think it's much more efficient now uh, than it was 20 years ago? Yeah, I think that there are a number of things that contribute to the differences in efficiency now. But if you're looking at output simply as the the kind of heuristic or the, or the measure for productivity, then the amount of work that a person can do in, the, in a day, I, I don't think has, has changed. What makes us more efficient is the actual value of the work that we're able to deliver and the ability to actually leverage uh, libraries and the thinking of other people. So uh, we we didn't have a lot of these things that allowed us to 
pull in and build on the shoulders of giants or even, you know, small individuals like packages and containers and things where you could take the work of others and extend it. But beyond that, if you say, hey, we're going to do a project and it's going to take us a year to get it done and we're going to be heads down and it's going to be a skunk works and then in a year we're going to come up, uh, you have essentially got a balloon payment on potential failures and all of those risks. Whereas now with the ability to like continuously build and deploy and to test, uh, we can deliver iterative, like more valuable incremental changes. So I think that's definitely been valuable, uh, especially because it's going to increase the amount of data and that conversation that's coming in from the market and from customers way more quickly than if you're going to say, hey, you know, we're going to build the world's best spork and we're going to get it to the market. And then you get it to the market and you find out, well, nobody wants a spork. Like all of those costs are waste, wasted. Uh, you could have been incredibly efficient at building the world's best spork. Your team was highly productive. Uh, everybody was at the right amount of capacity. The machine was humming. But in the end, was that valuable? Uh, on your LinkedIn profile, you have that development is a team sport. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you mean by that? Why does that sentence mean a lot to you? It's, it's a good question. There's, there, there is an obvious uh, difference between the roles of people when you're talking about a design uh, resource versus a development resource versus someone who's coming from product versus someone who is like strictly on QA or test automation. What I'm talking about specifically is, is even within a discipline, within a team of just software engineers, it is more like a team sport than it is like a uh, interchangeable unit, uh, you know, where each, each person is an interchangeable gear in a machine that they all fit the same role and they all do the same thing. So an example would be if you're looking at something like uh, American football, if you try and build a team that's all quarterbacks, that all have that same skill set, you might get an interesting experiment, but it's probably not going to be a highly competitive team where you've got different players that are playing different roles. So when you're building a team, even if it's a self-managing team of generalists, they're going to be individual humans and they're going to have different strengths that they bring to bear in service of the team. And the way we look at it is, hey, what are those human like soft and core skills that people bring and when we're, we're measuring them, let's measure them in the context of the team and really amplify the strengths of individuals so that they really are playing to their own strengths in service of the team as opposed to trying to create this, this ladder or this rubric where everybody is measured on the same thing. So mm -hmm. an example would be we're trying to build a team and we're trying to uh, ensure that communication is great on something like, uh, let's say, pull request code review. Um, and some individuals on the team might be really responsive to other members who are saying, hey, can you take a look at my code? Uh, but others on the team might not be as responsive because they're really, really effective in the feedback that they give. They're really thorough. They, they're thoughtful. Uh, and the expectation can't be, hey, we want everybody to take all of this time and be really, really thorough on every code review. Or we want everybody to be really, really fast and get them over with. You need to have a mix. Whoops, as I punched the microphone. You need to have a mix of different things coming from the individuals on the team that are going to contribute to the success of the team overall. So when you try and make everybody the same, you get that Harrison Bergeron effect where, you know, everybody regresses to the mean and you get a bunch of mediocrity. Everybody's average. But if you treat it like a team sport, hey, let's get the people in the right roles. Let's not have an orchestra where everybody's playing triangle. Let's not have a Dungeons and Dragons party where everybody is just going to be a barbarian. Let's have different roles within those teams and really optimize to individual strengths. And that's when you get something that's interesting and really singing. Even if the technical skills underlying it are relatively similar, uh, you want to have humans still 
live into the thing that makes them human. Uh, I was just going to build upon the answer that you mm-hmm. gave, Myron, with the pull requests and the responsibility. That's something that I personally have experience with. It's <laughs> it's such a great, um, uh, profound experience that you shared with us because. I'm sure that every developer and every team worldwide has experienced this, that even if they ask other people to take a look at my code, they might actually need to go and personally ask others, you know, to take a look. Because if they just say in the group chat, like, hey, take a look, please, <laughs> 24 hours later, nothing. So, yeah, that's that's quite quite uh, the insight. Thank uh, you. Anyways, in uh, large teams, such as uh, 10 plus people, uh, do you think there's a productivity difference between a large team or a small team? Yeah, I, I think that um, the short answer is is yes, uh, but it depends on again going, taking a step back how you're measuring productivity. Uh, you know, there there are some things that are common. Um, you know, I'll, I'll say it again, like the common heuristics that that you look at when you're when you're constructing a team. When you get a, over a certain size, you're going to naturally have it where you know, at about that, you know, five to eight people on a team where the the amount of human bonds that we can have, the amount of like deep connectedness that we can have between individuals on the team is naturally going to be stressed. So if you get to a team that's at about that 10 size, it really, and again, this is not one size fits all, but you should really start thinking about, hey, is there a natural organic way for us to actually split off this team so it can be a, a smaller independent unit so that they can you know, not have it where relationships and uh, the actual, you know, engagement between individuals on the team is going to fall off. So, uh, and, and I do want to, I want to circle back and talk a little bit more in a second about what you're saying about uh, about PRs and, and code reviews, because I think there's an important point there. But again, productivity based on just pure output um, when you're talking about a, uh, a small team versus a large team, um, it, it really is, is hyper variable. So uh, I would say whenever possible, it makes good sense when you hit that five mark for number of people who are on a team to start thinking about, hey, once we get to eight to nine to 10, can we organically pull this off and make it into another team? And then the next worry is, hey, now that we've done this, have we just done it on paper? Kind of like that, oh, hey, we're, we're agile now because we have two week check-ins versus being waterfall. Like, have I actually created two independent right. teams that are able to self-govern, self-manage and get things done? Or have I just created a big team that has this artificial barrier between them and I'm creating like weird uh, organizational overhead that I don't need? So you have to also make sure, hey, are these teams actually able to have an interface between each other where they're, you know, the those relationships between teams as units is defined as well. So uh, the short answer is I'm in favor of always having smaller teams, like not, not tiny teams, like teams that are about that five to, to eight size that are going to actually have well-defined boundaries for what makes them a team because those teams too are going to have to, have to operate in uh, you know, their own universe but still have collaboration with outside teams. So there's, there's a lot of... Um, you know, additional thought that has to go into it because there's a cost every time you create a new team, right? There's a cost that that team has to gel. They have to go through that forming, storming, norming period before they're actually going to be productive. So sometimes you might have to deal with the overhead of having a larger team as opposed to cutting a team up midstream 
because it'll it'll put a project or you know uh, something else at risk. Um, really quickly to go back though to what you're saying about uh, hey I, I have a code review and I'm looking for somebody to review it and I've assigned people and I've asked people for help uh, and and I'm not getting anything. This was a big reason why we were looking at the types of tools that I've been working on for the past couple of years is because there are different types of individuals on teams uh, who may have different feelings about certain tasks. Um, one of them is, hey, I understand the value of actually doing a code review and receiving a code review. And someone else on the team may be, hey, I, uh, I don't see the value. The code is good enough. Like Nobody ever finds anything. Nobody's not doing code reviews for me. This is a chore. So there is that feeling where, hey, I don't understand the impact of the work I'm doing, or this is this is a chore, like why should I be doing that? And really being able to get insights into the different things that you do as an individual throughout the day that are helping other people on the team is really important. So being able to say, hey, uh, Botan did a code review for you last time, you should do one from, for them because there is this notion of reciprocity is is critical. It's important to know, hey, like, People are doing things for you. You should be doing them, you know, as well, just to be a, a good team member. But the flip side of this is, hey, like that's that's purely like interpersonal. What is this doing in service of the team? And like, do I know what is expected of me and what those norms are? And being able to know, like, hey, people on the on your team are doing these code reviews because they are doing X and they're doing them within this time frame, and these are the expectations but also protecting maker time and allowing them to get the like heads down work done. It's a really interesting and critical balance as you, uh, you know, as you're going through. And I feel like that's the, that's the really, the most important part of being able to have uh, like a really healthy team ops ecosystem is how do you balance all these different data sources with all these different people, with all these different responsibilities and still get work done uh, in a way that keeps people engaged and actually satisfied and happy doing their job, and, and it is a tough balance. So I've 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 rambled on for a while there, but hopefully yeah, we can no, pull out and, a good nugget. And and I assume that uh, you know the longer a project goes on, the more difficult it usually is for the the team ops to run as smoothly. Because or or it could be the opposite. It could be that everyone's so used to each other that it's like a natural fit. But it also could be that everyone's going in different directions, and it's, the project's been going on so long they don't know where they are in it. Uh, so there could be all kinds of things related to that as well. From my point of view, uh, as you said, it's really a tight uh, balance between protecting creative time and uh, review time. And I definitely do feel that every day. Yep. <laughs> it's always chore to switch from uh, creating something new and interesting uh, to just reviewing someone else's code. But the way I try to look at it, there are very few things that uh, I am the foremost expert at. And I try to focus on those uh, small, tiny things that I can spot immediately. So that's what I try to focus on. But uh, definitely there are other people who uh tend to uh, try to understand the whole pr in general especially the big feature that can take a long amount of time so <laughs> i'm not sure if that's uh, that makes no. any sense i feel I'm no it, it definitely makes so. sense i think that it, and it highlights uh you know a difference between individuals right if if you mm -hmm. feel that your power 
you know, the, the contribution that you have when you're reviewing someone else's code is to look for possible, uh, you know, issues with the code or to find things that might be quirks or, or ways that they are, are different from the kind of established norms within the team. I think that's valuable. Uh, it, it doesn't make you necessarily more or less valuable than someone who's going to go through and do a real deep, thorough analysis of everything. Uh, which again is 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 great. It comes at the cost because that means that they're probably not going to be able to focus as much time on the creative maker work that they need to be doing to write code. And also, it means that they're probably going to be looking at less code reviews. So there is a balance there. Uh, and even in the size of of you know the the pull request or whatever the changes that you're checking in, um, you know if it takes more than an hour for someone to actually do a code review based on the actual size of, of the code. So uh, I think the general uh, you know, change set size is about 250 lines is where it starts to top out. And if you get above 400 lines of changes, then things rapidly are going to go downhill just in the human capacity to like stay engaged and interested and actually look for defects and look for issues. I think you catch you know, uh, as many as like 86% in that first hour as an individual, and then it rapidly goes down. So someone who's going to invest a lot of time in a really big change set, um, you know, it, it may have diminishing returns. So, and it could be a, a, another size, uh, not an, or rather, it could be another sign of this dysfunction where people are checking in huge changes. They've been a black box, you know, nobody knows what's going on. Then boom, this huge change comes out. And the expectation is, well, people need to go and look at my change because I look at theirs. Well, the balance just isn't there. Like, you're, you're being punitive to your oh, team yep. because you're checking in this huge <laughs> set that nobody's had a chance to look at, and you're expecting them to review your giant change set the same way that you would look at a, a small one. So having those kinds of insights and being able to tune and get to, to norms across the team where where people understand, hey, here's, here's where we're going to be operating, here's how we're going to do it, goes a long way towards creating a more healthy environment where you don't feel like resentful towards people on your team because they're... Uh, they're, they're not acting in good faith um, and it might be just purely accidental they just don't know mm. well since we're on the topic of uh, how different team members interact and how they may may be different or how they may be similar uh, do you feel that um, in, in launcher teams as, as you said that tops out at around 10 people uh, are there any recurring personality patterns that uh, tend to emerge within the team or within the teams that you've managed so far? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, there, there, are, um, there are a number of, I, I don't know if I'd call them personalities, but there are behaviors that start to become more and more present depending on factors that are both internal and external to the team. So, so one that I, I see a ton of is uh, this notion of glue behavior. So if you have a team and the team is missing something, right, like, they haven't come together uh, and they aren't as cohesive as they need to be or there's something external that they're not getting from someone who's servicing the team, like let's say a product manager or their actual people manager for the team isn't doing what they need to do. Uh, there can oftentimes be people who step up into a role uh, and it's a dangerous place to be where they're acting as this pseudo manager or fixer for the team. So they're this, you know, this ethereal role where they're the fixer and they're like, hey, we don't have this information or we don't have this process or we don't have this thing. And they'll start to do these human and project and process management tasks 
that especially when you're looking at engineering, uh, they're not going to be measured and they're not going to be seen by the people who are responsible for uh, helping them through their career downstream. So it's like the adage that if a product manager doesn't do their job, someone else will. Well, generally, it's just a, a management construct. If, if a manager isn't doing their job or the team isn't managed well, someone might step up to do that. And the like, secret insidious truth is by virtue of doing that, they could end up hurting themselves because nobody is measuring, are you making others on your team better if you're an individual contributor? They're measuring what is your output? Like, what is your productivity? How many lines of code have you written in like the, mm-hmm. like the worst case scenario, most generic scenario? Uh, you know, I, I feel like I, I tend to uh, eagerly step yep. into the troll. <laughs> I can confirm it's the most dangerous place to be in, in anything. Yeah, and, and sure. it's one too where, uh, you know, it, it also has a uh, like outsized number of women who step into that role. Uh, they'll come in and they'll be like, hey, I want to be an engineer. I want to be this technologist. And then they find themselves being a fixer on a team and it actually stunts their ability to actually grow throughout their career because they're not doing the thing that they're being measured on. And uh, it's something where it's a critical role, like there's a reason that they're doing it, but not having it get measured and recognized is part of what the danger is, but also not having it be something that raises a flag so that a manager or other people can actually build the structure to make it so that they don't need to be doing those things. Um, it's like... Uh, you know, putting a Band-Aid over a bullet wound, right? Like you might not see that it's bleeding, but it's not going to get better for, by virtue of that Band-Aid there. So they're they're masking the fact that they're hiding these symptoms of this underlying issue that, that actually exists that needs to be fixed, and they're not going to be able to do it alone. Uh, but there are instances where the people who take on that role really love it, and they want to move into human management or uh, program or, or product management, but... Again, it's not where they are right now, so so it's difficult. Uh, so that's that's a, a role where it's kind of like self-harming. The other one is where you get the kind of rock star person, um, you know, someone who is always right, who is not, you know, they, they might have outsized productivity and they might actually be, um, you know, they, they might be a great technologist, but they're a jerk. Uh, and when you get teams of a certain size, they can be toxic because you're not looking at, hey, how do we get a bunch of rock stars who are going to, you know, they want to be always right. They want to be on the the, the stage um, as opposed to people who want to be a part of a band, right? They want to actually work together and make something that, that sounds great and is great together. Uh and they tend to have this outsized influence too because, oh, well, you're, I'm the only one who knows how to do X or I am the whole reason that this product is great. Uh, the secret with them is, you know, if, if they aren't trainable is to, is to get rid of them because they are going to actually make the team much worse. Uh, and, and that's one, too, that can be harmful. And when you get to a certain size, especially if you're bringing on people who are more junior, people's egos can get inflated and then they can become this toxic force on these teams, um, which, which is another reason why it's good to, to try and have it where you've got teams that are of a certain size, just so you can limit like this negative impact if you do have folks like that, and you can you can better manage and mitigate around it. But uh, 
but yeah, I think too there are also cultural differences. Uh, you know, when you have teams of a certain size and they're distributed, there might be differences between personalities and cultures that are just inherent with how they grew up, how they were raised, where they're from. Um, and I think that fundamentally, it's it's less about personality and more about, hey, can we can we trust each other? Can we have open conversations with each other? Can we provide feedback in a way that's actually going to help people grow? If you deliver feedback that is going to be you know, too direct and too um, lacking of tact, uh, it's going to be just as bad as if you leave feedback that is going to be just sugar-coated and not actually get to the root of making things better. So there is like this, there is an interesting balance, but uh. yeah, we, uh, we, we've experienced that. Uh, one of the things that we do is we do a lot of uh, personality behavior assessment uh, surveys and testing to make sure that the people who are on the team kind of communicate in a similar way that their workflows, we don't want everyone to be exactly the same, but uh, the people leading the team, uh, you know, have a, a certain work style and can accept other flows easily. Uh, and we also do the same with our clients to make sure that the teams and the clients work out uh, together. Uh, so I definitely agree with you that that's a, a critical point. Um, yeah. One of the other questions I, I have is, as you were talking, you know, most of your product development conversations been orientated towards the actual product development. But mm -hmm. we also know that once kind of, uh, particularly with digital products and SaaS products, once the product has been launched and released, there's almost like a second wave of development, which is all the maintenance development. Like, you know, these products, once you kind of get it finished, it, it's never finished because there's all these maintenance chores, they're changing platforms, there's bugs that are getting found. When you're putting together a team to do this kind of software maintenance, maybe you can talk a little bit about how maintenance development and initial product development are are similar or different. Uh, maybe you can give a little insight on, on how managing those teams are different if they are, uh, or what's your, your view on that? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a difference between greenfield and brownfield development and being able to manage a, uh, a product throughout its life cycle and even, you know, uh, the one day, hey, we need to we need to sunset and you know stabilize and, and put this thing on the shelf. Uh, but I, I think that as it relates to how you manage the the team itself, there are some you know underlying I, I think truths that you wanna you wanna have regardless. If you're maintaining a product in perpetuity and there is no new feature development, uh, you know it, it's it's a little bit more of a challenge than. If you're going to be bringing something new to market, that's going to be, you know, hey, this is this is interesting. We get to choose new technologies off the shelf. We get to put whatever process into place that we want. But you still have fundamentally, you have to have interesting problems that you need to solve, and you need to bring through, you know, the the customer voice and have empathy that is being shared throughout the team. Um, so. I think fundamentally, if, if you've got a product and you don't have interesting problems to solve for the individuals who are on the team still and they're not able to grow, it's going to be much more challenging than uh, you know if you if you do still have those problems to solve. And and more and more, it's becoming you know more similar to maintain a product over time uh, because you're going to be able to iteratively deploy. You're going to be able to do things that are going to like very rapidly get you feedback. Uh, and it's not going to be wildly dissimilar. It's just a, a difference of scope. It's a difference of, 
hey, here are all the different moving parts that we have to manage because it's something that's been built out and it's got this complexity. Uh, but, you know, it, it really is, uh, I think fundamentally it comes down to, you know, philosophy and, and what you're actually going to be bringing to market. Because uh, if you're saying, hey, we've got something that in, in these six months time, we need to bring something brand new and it needs to look exactly like this as, as written down. And essentially you're doing something that's waterfall. It's going to be very different than what maintenance looks like because even if you do have set times for when you're going to be deploying, uh, maintenance is going to be more largely dictated by the truths of, hey, here's what the product is actually doing. Here's how available it is. Here's how secure it is. Here's what we're hearing from customers. Here are these things that are brittle. Here are libraries that are no longer being maintained. Um, that is that is externally influenced and you can use something like, you know, hey, we've got we've got a, a simple Kanban board that we're using to kind of bring these things through and, and do them as they as they come in versus, hey, we need to time box this and deploy this and it needs to have a certain amount of features and uh, we need to have all of this there because there are marketing and sales efforts that are reliant on it and, and other pieces. Uh, but as it relates to the individuals on the team and, and how you manage them as humans, uh, I, I don't think it's much different. You need to have the you need to have those pieces in place that are going to keep them happy and engaged, regardless. Um, that the challenges obviously are different, but uh, yeah, I think maybe in 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 the you know a lot of people it's very easy to think about the product development and getting the product built, and you know the, there's an end or a kind of a statement that we are going to have it at this revision, and and people are working towards the goal, whereas maintenance. If they don't plan it and design what they want maintenance to look like, it could turn into some boring, monotonous thing uh, in which the developers all leave to go get more interesting work. Uh, so companies right. have to really focus on the maintenance side. How do we make it interesting for the developers? How do we make sure they have new features to work on? And how do we make sure we're addressing customer requirements, changing customer requirements? Uh, so the the maintenance team seems like it's uh it, it has its own challenges versus product development. Yeah, and and honestly, uh, you know, in, in my experience, and again, it's been a long time since I've been uh, working on the agency side. In the SaaS side, there hasn't been a huge difference between hey, here is the team that has a value stream and is bringing a feature to to bear within this product. And then the team that's going to maintain it over time. They still are responsible for maintenance. They're responsible for having, you know, firefighter duty and, and triaging and what have you. And their deployments to fix those things follow a, a similar kind of cadence for the, the types of feature work they do. And we've got interesting new ways, you know, within the last 10 years plus to be able to to actually do them in a more fluid way that's going to still be safe when you deploy. And we've got you know, the ability to use feature flags and we've got, you know, interesting continuous deployment and, you know, a way to, to bring value and get telemetry and other data back that uh, that allows for it to be more safe and, and more meaningful and to, to know more than before. I think if you're looking at it as, hey, there's been a strict handoff and it's gone to maintenance and these people are responsible now for, for maintaining something they didn't build and it's not going to be incorporating like those interesting data points and they don't really have ownership or uh, autonomy to be able to like improve. Um, 
it becomes more of a challenge. And there, there obviously are times like that because it's just, hey, it's not cost effective or we're sunsetting this thing or, or we've got like one customer that's still on this legacy product and we can't move them off and they're not, you know, we, we want to keep them happy, but they're not critical to our business. Uh, in which case, you know, uh, I, I think that it's, it's probably a discussion around, hey, is this where you want to, where you want to be? Do you want to be able to to maintain this product forever in perpetuity, or are there opportunities that we have to actually, you know, elevate you or pull you out of this team, or you know, it, it really is going to be something where it's I think personal based on the individual that you're working with. But um, yeah, I've I've had teams where we had to sunset products and we had new products that were coming on, and the thing that we tried to do as quickly as possible is make sure that the that we had folks who were able to maintain that, but that was no longer their full-time job just because it was not the interesting work to do anymore. Mm-hmm. So how can we get this product as stable as possible so we don't need a lot of hands and a lot of eyeballs on it in case there is an issue? Like, let's make it so it's not brittle. Let's make it so that we've got all the alerting and the uh, the kind of service fabric that we need wrapped around it to keep it going and then yank them as much as possible onto the new work so that they can continue to grow and feel professionally engaged and be happy. But, you know, reality okay. dictates um, that not always the case. Since we are discussing green, the differences between Greenfield and Brownfield's mm-hmm. projects, uh, uh, from my side, I'm more interested in uh, the context of Greenfield, but it will also be very interesting to hear your answer in the context of uh, Brownfield projects as well. To what you feel like the ideal team split could be between uh, analysis and or architecture, development, and uh, QA. Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting. I think it's less about split because if you're looking at it as uh, hey, we, we've got a, a team that's a certain size. We're, we're going into a new a new uh, project or a new product. Um, and, you know, let's say we're a brand new company and we've got three engineers. Those three engineers are going to be architecture. They're going to be development. They're going to be QA. Uh, and, and I think there's a propensity, especially within lo- larger legacy orgs, to have what, what I consider to be a, a, a very big waste in software development, which is like very black and white handoffs. So it'll be like, hey, I'm responsible for developing code, but I'm not responsible for the quality of my code. Uh, I'm responsible for, uh, let's say, the business analysis. uh, And that also means I'm responsible for dictating how the solution is going to get developed. And then development just has to actually put down code that's taking my pseudocode and requirements and turning it into a thing. Uh, I, I think that's a, that's a dysfunction. So the ideal team ownership should be that everybody, regardless of who they are, should be aligned in terms of the value that they're trying to deliver uh, and should own the quality of the solution, the availability of the solution, the performance of the solution, the security of the solution, the the value and the delight that it brings to users as a solution. So an example would be like for me, I, I believe very firmly that the business side of things, the product management side of things should be focused on defining what the problem is as opposed to dictating downstream to designers and engineers what the solution needs to look like and how it needs to act. And part of that job is going to be 
helping to bring the, the voice of users and customers through to let them know, hey, here's who we're building it for. So that gives the developers and, and designers the ability to actually do their job, which is to create solutions that are going to be innovative and interesting, as opposed to just acting as a kind of automaton that's just doing the thing. Uh, then as it relates to actually sending it over to QA, I'm a firm believer in you know, the, the, the DevOps uh, kind of paradigms around, hey, you should, you should own the quality of your code. You should be a... a you know, responsible for the actual building and uh, downstream performance of your code. Uh, and there I think that QA is, hey, how can we actually build uh, test and automation that's actually going to help the developer experience so that they don't have to like dig in too heavily? Um, so I, I don't think that there is an ideal team split. I think that teams themselves should be you know, generalist enough in their ability that they can they can do many of these things like within an uh, an engineering team, let's say. Um, but then, uh, you know, for once you reach a certain scale, you need to have certain things that are going to be there that are going to serve the product. Uh, you know, at scale, so you can't have it where every engineer is expected to do every possible task without having some sort of support fabric around it, some sort of support structure. So. I don't have a good one-size-fits-all answer. I mean, the exciting thing is that, you know, product is evolving. Like, product development is evolving. Uh, and it's at a rapid rate. So the tooling we have now, like, even the context of everybody working from home and, and remotely, if you would have told me that it looked like this three years ago, I would have thought you were crazy. But then, you know, you have a global pandemic and it changes everything. So... Uh, yeah, and I we've feel... been doing it since we started in 2012. So right. for us, it's kind of natural. I I do have another question. It kind of comes into this context of team format. One of the things I think people really don't think about or integrate or utilize is the concept of product owner. Um, mm -hmm. How do you feel about product owner and, and who should be the product owner and, and how do they fit within a development team? Or should they be exclusively outside of the team or should the product uh, owner be part of the team? Or how do you see product owner in that relationship with the development or development team? It, it, that's an excellent question. I think that in general, if you're looking at any role on a team and even any kind of ceremony or artifact around a team and who's going to be involved, I, I always like to look at it through the lens of how is value being delivered and is it bi-directional? So if you look at product owner and uh, you're looking at where they live and how they're participating and um, you know what they're doing day to day, it really is a question of where is, is value going to and where is it coming from? So I think that product owner as a role, I think is, is really great, especially on very complex products that have multiple features that need to be owned. Uh, that need to have some way of actually getting fidelity down to the feature capability level that can't be served by having like this central product conduit that, that exists over top of it. And if you're looking at it as, hey, I want to have a, a single chokeable throat from a business perspective because we need to have someone who actually understands the business side and the actual implementation side and is responsible for that, I think that it makes sense as well. But, uh, you know, the question of, 
hey, where do they live and what are they what are they involved in should be, hey, are they getting value from actually being involved here? Is the business getting value? Is the customer getting value? And then is the engineering team getting value from them being there as well? So uh, if the answer is no, then there is some sort of dysfunction there. Either they're not doing their job to bring forward, uh, you know, hey, what is the problem that we're solving? Why is it important? What are customers saying? Like providing that context. Uh, they could just be serving as a, a taskmaster for some arbitrary, like imagined internal thing for the business. And I, I think that that's not, that's not helpful at all. But if they're actually doing their role and bringing through the, the things that they need to do to help prioritize and estimate and understand value that is going to be delivered and put it in order, uh, and they're able to take back the concerns of engineering team to stakeholders upstream, and then it becomes a, a really powerful role. Uh, there's just there's a lot of work to do when you have big projects that are highly complex. So having individual product owners over teams is is helpful. I mean, the flip side is if you have one product owner for many many teams, they can often get stretched thin and they just become like weird traffic cops and they start to lose the the value of their role as well. But it's just like it's just like with a meeting, right? Like. Hey, should I go to this meeting? Am I going to provide anything valuable? Am I going to actually get anything out of this meeting? If the answer is no to, to one or both of those, then probably don't have it. If you're looking at it as a product owner, like, are they going to bring any value to this team? Well, if they should, is the team going to get any value from them? Are they going to, you know, um, then I think it's fine to structure it that way. If you're going to do a traditional agile scrum like methodology, if you leverage that type of framework, then not having a product owner and trying to like overload a scrum master with that role, I think is a, is a good recipe for failure. So I think having it as a separate. Yeah. So. It's a, that's one of the, the areas that uh, are a challenge in all types of development. Um, so it, one of the things that, that you also kind of touched on a little bit was the communication and the flow of communication. Mm -hmm. You know, when everybody was working in an office or development teams were all in kind of some office, communication channels were relatively simplistic. You walk over to the next person's desk and have a conversation with them, uh, or there's some like group meeting presentation with remote uh, development and with the remote work environment, obviously that's changed dramatically. And one of the things that, that is, seems to be a challenge for teams who are working remotely uh, is what communication platform and what kind of channels do they use? How do they communicate? Uh, some people prefer, you know, they don't like email. They'll only communicate through Slack. And some people are, I only communicate through a Google Meet. So in managing a team remotely, which is going to be the reality for a lot of people now, uh, what's your experience with communication channels and dealing with how do you keep all the different types of communication needed for a team to actually move forward on a project? Yeah, I mean, the the short answer is uh, it's, it's really, really difficult, and that's why I've been focused on building tools to try and solve the problem. I mean, there are so many different things that are coming at people. And uh, the reality is you've got this feed of information that's constantly coming to you via email or Slack or what have you, that if you're not there to look at it synchronously, then it's going to, to, to get buried and it's going to become part of this just, uh, you know, alert deluge that's coming through where you've got all these different things that you have to look at across all these different channels. 
So the the best possible thing would be, hey, is there is there some way to actually mitigate that and have it where the most important information that I need personally is going to come to me at the right time and in the right context? That's not practical for everybody. So uh, some interesting ways that I've I've seen people do it is they they just simply publish, hey, here are times when I'm going to be available. These are like my personal open office hours. Here are the ways that I like to communicate and have it in a place where others don't have to go and try and uh, figure out what's best for you. Like, oh, if I send you an email, you're not going to look at it because you're constantly getting all of these emails from production systems and from other things that are, you know, just serve as this feed of, uh, you know, constant noise that that you just get alert fatigue and you're not going to look at it anymore. So I want you to directly reach out to me on Slack as a direct message. Well, I can't know that. So there needs to be some way of, of describing what your interface is as a human so that others can know. Uh, so I think that just being able to communicate that up front is important for each member of a team and having some sort of social contract that says, hey, here are the times when we're going to be able to be working together and here's how we're going to communicate um, and here are times when we're going to be protected for doing maker work or creative work. Uh, in terms of having like a best channel, I, I am not a, a huge fan of email personally. I like using something like Slack. So for me, you know, having these like synchronous, asynchronous blends works really well. It's not going to work really well when I've got a team that's in uh, India and a team that's on the East Coast and a team that's on the West Coast and a team that's in uh, Poland or the Ukraine. Like you have to have some provisions for actually being able to deliver and hand these things off in a meaningful way. And, and they're, you know, there aren't tools right now that really do a great job of lifting and shifting work and making sure that it actually is going to be like communications follow the sun. So people need to be really good and mindful about, Hey, we've adopted a channel for being able to communicate things that are uh, long lived like documentation or, um, plans. And then we've got channels for uh, more synchronous communication, but we have to plan around overlap. It, it really comes down to more of a human problem than a communication channel problem. And, um, and, and then it comes down to like what I was talking about previously, like, is there value in me getting this communication? Like why, why are people not going to their email? Well, there's obviously like a, a mismatch between the value that they're receiving via those emails and, you know, uh, the time it's going to take them to actually go and dig through them to find this value. Even if it means they miss the email that says, hey, you need to re-up for health insurance this year uh, or whatever. Something that's truly valuable gets lost because they, uh, they've just given up on it because they're getting all this like BS that doesn't apply to them. So... Um, it's a it's a balancing act, but there's all of this noise that comes from non-human channels too that people don't account for. That is part of the reason why, like engineers, tend to like things like Slack, because it's going to be giving them a real-time feed of information or a, you know, even if it's not real time, it'll give them a feed of things that are coming in that are tightly integrated with that platform. So hey, I'm getting alerts from Sentry or Rollbar or production systems. I'm getting like alerts from GitHub. And I'm starting to rely on it for my day-to-day -day work. And now you tell me I have to go and look at an email or I have to go and check this other thing. Um, and that's where it starts to become, you know, maybe for a business person, like they don't care about those things. So they don't right. have empathy. But uh, 
but there's a, yeah. a reality to the value that they're actually going to get out of that channel. Yeah, I mean, one of the the challenges on communication channels is, is that you know, people are kind of one of the fatigues that I, I find that people are having, business people as well as developers, is they're having to learn a new platform every month, mm -hmm. right? There's a new technology that all of a sudden people are mm -hmm. using, a new SaaS product, a new something, and they're all different, and you all need to spend time trying to figure out how do you do this, and you know in your head what you want to do, but trying to figure out how to do it on a new platform takes a lot of time, and eventually you use it enough where it becomes second nature, but one of the biggest barriers to different communication channels is that. Uh, that there doesn't seem to be a stability of tools, uh, although you get some like Slack, which kind of become, you know, the mainstream of the development community until a new one comes along in three or four years, it's better. And so people start migrating over to that one, except for those people who are now used to Slack and they don't want to learn a new one. And so they're going to stick with it as long as they can. So there's right. always that kind of uh, push and pull between the different people onto communication challenges. But I agree with you, it's definitely a challenge for the future and uh, it's some interesting projects. Uh, uh, what kind of tools uh, do you think uh, or that you've been working on to uh, uh, deal with this problem that you think are, are worth exploring? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, there, there are tools that exist out there that serve only as an intermediary to, to kind of bring those communication channels together. Um, you know, hey, we're going to, we're going to translate this message from from this platform to this other one so you can get it where you want it. But the things that I think are most interesting are, hey, you've got this workflow that goes end to end. And uh, there are all these different moving parts and all these different things that are happening that we're automating. Uh, and the actual signal gets lost because there are so many alerts and so many things that are vying for your attention at any given time. So the tools that actually are going to go through and say, hey, here is the most valuable thing that you can do right now to help yourself, to help your project, to help your teammates. Um, those are the things that I get excited about, things that are going to actually augment our ability as humans to focus on the stuff that's really important and not have to worry about the administrivia. So things come prioritized to me, come directed to me, come tailored for me. So I know, hey, you know, the most important thing I can do right now is respond to Dave's email or to to do a code review for this person or to go and uh, respond to this production alert um, and to do it in such a way where you don't have communication channels and uh, and products that are competing for each other so that they go through a central kind of conduit. Uh, that's really interesting to me and that's what we've been working on because you do have, you know, even with tools like Slack, the counter example to what I was saying before, like, hey, we get all these alerts in Slack or to Botan's example earlier where he said, oh, you know, I had to ask someone to do a code review in a channel and nobody did it. So I have to go and reach out to people individually. We well, get this kind of like uh, bystander effect thing where an alert comes into this shared channel and everybody thinks someone else is going to do it. You know, uh, it's this weird like, oh, well, somebody asked for help, but I, I thought someone was going to help him, so I didn't help him. Um, and and it creates these weird things. Yep, that that is too too real. Right, and then too, <laughs> then then you start to lose trust in the actual signal. Um, and I see this pattern like, hey, we we we've got a new system that's doing something that's helping us, and it sends us alerts and notifications to a Slack channel, and we put it in our main Slack channel, 
and then we moved it to its own channel, and then I muted that channel uh, because you just you stop getting value from it. I see it too with like vulnerability and dependency bots. Like people are like, hey, I keep getting all these requests to to go and check on this code review that came from or this pull request that came from a dependency bot, but nobody's actually looking at it or wants to do anything about it. Um, you know, uh, because just all of this noise happens. So a way that you can actually remove all of that and just get tailored communications for you uh, from these central systems so you can actually do your job is, I think, really interesting. Um, things like, hey, am I using Slack or Teams or Workplace or, you know, uh, Meet or what have you? Uh, I think that, you know, they'll all be ICQ and AOL Instant Messenger and, you know, what have you 10 years from now. Like, we won't remember Slack any more than we remember Yammer or, uh, you know, HipChat or, or whatever the last thing was. But the reality is, like, communication is still fundamentally having the way to get value out of synchronous and asynchronous communication, especially now that it's coming from outside systems as well as humans, uh, is going to be more important to solve than ever. Well, I don't know. I would be really interested to see, um, just as an example of the uh, build notifications or the PR review requests or whatever else to just arrive in Microsoft Teams. That would be a huge upgrade from having to go on, uh, you know, the DevOps uh, website, mm -hmm. having to check everything manually and deciding if uh, something uh, is actually something I need to take a look at. Yeah, so, you know, email especially, it's it is just so invaluable. Right. Said, like the the standard email, right? <laughs> you must get like. Uh, at minimum hundreds but probably thousands of emails every 24 yep. hours and the average value of those emails is uh, nil yep. <laughs> there's just no value there whatsoever yep. that's uh, kind of the nature of our universe I mean uh, the nature of information is to get more and more diluted over time that's uh, kind of something we discovered through physics <laughs> yeah I feel sorry <laughs> for any of those but, uh, people yeah. doing email uh, campaigns for marketing because I get two, three hundred emails a day. Uh, I'm getting pretty good at being able to just scan through emails and pick out the ones that actually have value to me. And all the others, I don't even look at them because I, I can just tell that they're not emails I need to look at. And if I was only getting 10 emails a day, then I probably would look at all those marketing emails. But oh. when you're getting 300, it's just too much. And so you're, you enter your email, you know, uh, inbox just to what email do I have to look at now? What email do I have to focus on? Uh, and you just start getting used to scanning and picking out the others. Same with Slack. Sometimes yeah. the channels get so full of stuff and there's so many people on a channel that you have to kind of just go through it and try to figure out which ones really apply to you. Uh, and they haven't really come up with a lot of good AI uh, that's been able to kind of do that for people. Um, but we will see what happens in the future. It could be a future project. Yeah, I think that that's, that's uh, largely, especially for engineering teams, what we're looking at as a, as a problem that we're trying to solve with botany. So to, to uh, even the earlier point that Botan had about, uh, hey, I have to go and look at a website to know what the next thing is for me to do. So I have to go, I have to deliberately switch my context from what I was doing to something else. I have to go and spend all of this brain power and, and cognitive load on trying to dig for in just one source. This is like, I'm just going to 
the Azure DevOps site or I'm going to uh, GitHub or GitLab or Bitbucket or what have you. I'm just going there to look and see, hey, does someone need me for this specific thing? Not to mention, hey, are there alerts that are coming from other production systems? Is there an alert that's coming from Jira or Asana or Shortcut? Is there an alert that's coming from the you know somewhere else? They all fit into the same workflow. But in a perfect world, we would all have you know the kind of uh, secretaries that you'd see on on you know the, the TV shows, you know sitcoms from from back in the '60s, '70s, and '80s, right? Uh, boss, you need to do this thing next. Like, hey, your appointment is here. This is a really important thing you need to do now. So having a system that takes all of these different signals and says, hey, I am your executive assistant. This is the thing that's most important for you to do next, and here's why. That, that's where I personally think things need to go. Um, I know right now that I need to be working on writing code or I need to be in a meeting or I need to be doing a thing. But when my context changes, I want something to tell me, hey, now that you're looking for the next thing, here's the next most important thing. Here's who needs it, for, needs it from you. Here's the timing that makes it, you know, like generally speaking, these types of things get done within your organization in this amount of time. And here's the impact that you're going to have. And so we've put it in this rough priority order is really going to be valuable for being able to remove all of that like, hey, can somebody help me type of notifications that you know you get. And you're like, I don't know if I can help. Is this aimed at me? Is this aimed at the team? Uh, I see I'm assigned to this, but so are 30 other people. Uh, somebody will get it. It won't be me. And then it just you know rinse and repeat over and over again and tell you everything takes three days to get done as opposed to you know an hour. Um, it becomes problematic. Anyway. Uh, I'm passionate about that that specific piece. Well, um, maybe now is a good time uh, to to ask. Uh, what are you currently uh, working on, and what are you looking to do in the future, and what are you thinking about for your own kind of career path uh, moving forward? Yeah, I you know for my, for my own career path, I I love the craft of product. I love working with engineering teams. Uh, I love working with design teams. So. I feel like my career to date has been pretty fulfilling. Uh, you know, I, the ability to continue to provide actual impact, either social or uh, through product, uh, be involved in a good culture, to have opportunities to receive and to provide mentorship are, are all critical for me wherever I end up. Uh, for me personally, what I've been working on is I, I've been leading product at Botany IO, which is you know a product that is designed to do. Uh, many of these of these things that we've been talking about to help to keep the teams engaged and keep them effective and, and working together by making sure that people know where they're needed next and what their impact is going to look like. Uh, whether it is at Botany or somewhere else, I think that it's really important uh, for me that I, I'm able to continue to shape what that looks like with the organizations and more broadly. How can you how can you improve your team? How can you make it where you know, you're better for coming to work every day and the people you work with are better for you having come to work today. So you're actually getting that value and you feel like you're improving and growing and staying satisfied in a meaningful way. Uh, and ultimately you deliver awesome products that make people happy and that keeps your company going and you get giant bonuses and uh, the world exactly. keeps turning. But um, but yeah, that's... Uh, that's that's in a nutshell what uh, what I, I hope for. So you said that uh, ideally you think things need to go in a direction you 
I'm paraphrasing here, but uh, everyone having their uh, personal assistant yeah. at the same level as uh, Jarvis in Iron Man. Yeah, no, that, yeah, that, that's a that's a, <laughs> a a good way to look at it, right? Like if if you think of every human as an actual individual, as opposed to one size fits all for everybody, uh, and you know, if your expectation is that people have different needs, there are going to be different things that motivate them. There are going to be uh, different strengths that they bring to bear. Then asking everybody just to to do the same thing in the same way at the same time is not going to be effective. So if you have, and also, I mean, you've got distributed teams that have different contexts, either if they're working in the office or not, they're across different time zones. So if I send you an alert that says, hey, right now I need you to uh, respond to this ticket uh, and you're asleep, like what good does that do you? Because by the time you wake up, there will be 50 other messages that have buried it. And there's yeah. nothing that actually... And I have experienced that. Many, right. Many and, and there's nothing that's going to actually tell you like, hey, here's why you've been selected. Here's why it's important, especially if it's just like a blanket notification that goes to a channel. So I think it's much more important yeah. to say, hey, based on your strengths, based on the things that you do every day, based on what your work context is right now, you're asleep, you're awake, you're available, you're actually writing code, you don't want to be disturbed. Um, here's the thing that I think is important for you to do next. And here's why it's important, hopefully helping to drive some internal motivator for you. Like it's important for you to do this because you're going to learn something interesting or because you're helping your team out or because it's necessary for this other reason. Um, I, I think that's better than just, nice. hey, there's an alert. It went to an email. It went to 30 people and hopefully somebody grabs it and nobody mm. knows why it's important. Yeah, nobody sure. cares. Uh, and I don't, I don't think it requires Jarvis level yet, um, but it definitely will be better once it gets Jarvis level, level understanding of who are you, mm. where are you, what motivates you, you know, and, and protects actual maker time. Like, I, I don't want to have it where you're getting a notification either, where you're like heads down trying to solve a problem, and it says, "Hey, somebody mentioned you in a comment on a Jira ticket about, you know, what color the button should be." Like, yeah. I don't care about yeah. that. I'm not working on that right now. Like, um, <laughs> but you might care when you're the, that's why they when today. you're working on yeah. the button. <laughs> so. No, for sure. Yeah. Uh, so, how far do you think uh, are we from that level? I mean. Naturally, I'm not asking how far we are from a um, workable prototype, but how how far are we from uh, your ideal scenario that uh, you would be satisfied yeah. with? So what we've been doing with Botany doesn't have any like really super sophisticated AI around the work context. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's what's, what's the most important piece is how do we actually uh, know exactly what you're going to be working on right now? Like what state of work, not necessarily like you know, are you, you know, we're not measuring mouse movement and keyboard clicks to know whether you're working, but is now a good time contextually for us to actually let you know that there's something else you should do because there are interesting things we can do around helping to habituate behaviors and stacking habits and doing other things that uh, I, I think are really, really interesting. I think the fundamentals though, you know, hey, uh, here are things that are important that require your help based on certain attributes we can pick up are currently, you know, it's currently something that exists in botany. I see other products that are coming on the market that do similar things. Um, maybe not quite as well as, as what we've got, but I think we're, 
I think we're there. I think we're on the cusp of these data-driven engineering management, like developer experience, uh, workflow, uh, team ops tools that are going to start to revolutionize things because it's going to be hyper-personalized, hyper-targeted, and hyper-contextually aware of you as an individual and what is meaningful for you and what has the highest impact on your projects and your teams. So I think it's where where team management and where uh, like project and workflow and process management is going. Cool. Well, right, hey, this, is, this has been a blast. I, I super appreciate getting to talk with you. And, and it's always great to talk with you, Dave and Botana. I love meeting, meeting you and getting to talk with you. So let me know for, any other way sure. I can help. And, it's uh, an absolute pleasure. Uh, this has been a really great conversation for Screenbox uh, Technology and Business Rundown. Uh, and I hope all of our uh, listeners will join us next month for the next one. Thank you very much for taking this journey with us. Join us for our next exciting exploration of technology and business in the first week of every month. Please help us by subscribing, liking, and following us on whichever platform you're listening to or watching us on. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and please let us know any subjects or topics you would like us to discuss in our next podcast by leaving a message for us in the comment sections or sending us a Twitter DM. Till next month, please stay happy and healthy. <laughs>